The scripture reading today is from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask that you meet us here today. In whatever condition we find ourselves as we walk through these doors. Help us to believe that you have seen fit to call this moment into being. That we are here because you have seen to it and that you have something you want us to hear. Help us to know and believe that you see us. You are the God who sees. That you see us in all of our complexity. In all of our beauty and all of our fragmentation. And your response is always to move towards us to put things back together, to heal, to restore, to renew. So help us to be present now to your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the day I told my therapist about a time when my dad slapped me on the face. He was a good man, just not his finest moment. <clears throat> My therapist looked at me and he said, what sensation are you feeling right now? What do you feel? No, he said, what are you feeling right now? And I said, a sensation on my cheek. And he said, your cheek is turning red. Now, we should not be surprised, actually, that that happened, my cheek turning red. Because we only really learn or experience or know anything with just our brains. We know and learn and experience everything with all of who we are. With all of who we are. Now, the person who wrote this scripture passage we just read a few moments ago is the Apostle Paul. And in his former life, he led with his brain only. And it led him to the conclusion, to, to the consciousness level of a tribalistic murderer, rounding up Christians to imprison, to kill. But then Paul had an experience that broke the rigid categories. He meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus 
and everything changes. You know what it did? It turned him into a mystic. It turned him into a mystic. I believe Karl Rahner is right when he says that the Christian of the future will be a mystic or they will not exist at all. A mystic is defined as a person who believes in the spiritual apprehension of truths that are beyond the intellect. Or as Paul puts it in this very passage, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul here writes of something deeper, more full-bodied. It's as if Paul is struggling for words to try to describe what he's talking about. It's something more full-bodied than acquiring facts and data. Because transformation, not just knowledge, takes a deeper kind of knowing. A deeper kind of knowing. Paul, in his prayer, invites his little flock in Ephesus, and I believe us today, into this deeper kind of knowing and being in the world. So he prays first for them to have an inner transformation. He says it in verse 16, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner head. Is that what Paul says? In your inner being. In your inner being. So, memorizing more Bible? Yes, good idea. Read books? Absolutely a good idea. Accumulate more information? Yes, but that's not, I don't think, what Paul is talking about here. Paul says he is strengthened in his inner, he wants them to be strengthened in their inner being. You know, elsewhere, this same Paul will say that every person is God's offspring. God's offspring. So isn't this reality supposed to be a part of who we are already? Where can we go to hide from the Lord's presence, the psalmist asks. Look, you can inherit millions of dollars. You may make millions of dollars. But if you're out at night late and you, have a, you don't have your ATM card and everything is closed, you are broke. <laughs> you are legally a millionaire and existentially broke in that moment. And I believe that we are spiritual millionaires. And we're all yearning for access to it. All made in God's image. All, everyone here, a mix of soul and soil. Male, female, gender nonconforming, gay, straight, trans, bi, black, white, brown, poor, rich, married, single, formerly married, southern, northern, eastern, western, let's just say it, shall we? Human. Human. All made in the image of God. In all of our amazing diversity, we are infinitely valuable. That just needs to be said today. The scriptures start right out of the gate, grounding us, all of us, in love and in blessing, if we'll listen. And yet, while most of us, while spiritual millionaires, if we are honest, are existentially broke, not accessing what we have, not present to what is already present. Paul will say elsewhere that God is over all, through all, and in all. All is such a good word. No one 
is excluded. No exceptions. We are just simply asleep to God's presence. We need to experience it in your inner being, down deep in your bones, of recognizing and discovering that God is there, that God is for you. For you. Maybe that's the only thing you need to hear today. God is not against you, friend. God is for you. For you. When Paul says he wants you to know a love that surpasses knowledge, he's telling you it's not about being correct. It's about being connected. Connected. In the darkest moments of your life, I want to tell you something. I can tell you that this reality will mean more to you than anything else. What has gotten me through the most difficult days is the discovery and realization that God is close. God is present. Not way out there, but right here. And he has been all along. And Paul's prayer is that your identity would be rooted and grounded in love in your inner being, in your real you, the you that God made, that is grounded in your true identity as the beloved child of God. See, there's the you that you construct, your false self, your floating self, your provisional self, your fictive self, your adapted self. And it gets you rewarded, and it gets a lot of things done. But it doesn't answer the question, is this worth getting done? And why does it matter? It's not bad. It's just self-created. But it has to die. What you will find out is that you really don't need it anyway. That false constructed self. A rooted self, rooted not in our construct of ourselves, but in God's when the love of God slips through that shell and your, of your persona you have carefully constructed, you will actually realize that God loves you, the real you, the you that God made. And if you just have a glancing blow with that a few times in your life, honestly, it will be the greatest thing that ever happened to you in your life. There's nothing else like it. You'll never doubt about whether you're forgiven. You will deal a death blow to your shame. You will leave being a caterpillar, a necessary stage, and start to fly as a butterfly, little by little. Secondly, Paul prays for this little community to be filled with God's fullness by grasping Christ's love. Verses 18 and 19, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend, bad translation, Grasp is a better bodily word there that more accurately reflects it. That you may be able to grasp, to comprehend, grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I just, I just wish I could convince you. And as you've heard me say in sermons before, that is my hardest job. Not only to convince myself, but to convince you. If I could just convince you the depth to which God loves you. The grace that God is always extending to you. The well of mercy that is yours to drink from. And really, if all you do is come in here once a week and you just hear that, just hear that, let it come over. Believe it about yourself, maybe for the first time. 
And we have people in the Bible who talk this way. Job would say that he, I heard you, but now I see you. He didn't really see, but he experiences God in a way that he can't explain. The psalmist talks about this. You're sweeter than honey in my mouth. To know, to see, to hear, to taste, to touch. Dare I say, Paul wants us to know the love of Christ in our bodies, in our gut, in our inner being. So when Paul says to remember the love of Christ for you, he's saying grasp it to know the love of Christ in all of, in all of who we are in our bodies, in our psychology, in our innermost self-concept. I think this is why Paul uses these words. Can you see that he's struggling here so badly? He uses words like breadth and length and depth and height. I love the Marilyn Robinson quote we have in the worship folder, the very first quote listed. She says, I experience a religious dread whenever I find myself thinking that I know the limits of God's grace, since I'm utterly certain it exceeds any imagination a human being might have of it. God does, after all, so love the world. The love of God in Christ is ever expansive. It's always broader, longer, deeper, higher than our conceptions of it might be. And I believe our compulsion is to limit God's love. That's about us. That's about us and our fear. Our insistence on focusing on who is in and who is out. It's not about God. Don't be afraid of the love of God's excessive expansiveness. Because as Terrence Malick said, no one, know, no one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. Again, remember, remember Paul's life. I keep on doing this as I'm reading Paul. Remember Paul's life. He goes from someone who was killing people for God. With his immature religion. And he meets Jesus, and now it's stuff like breath, width, height, depth of God's love for the world. I mean, how do you know if that operating system, how do you know if that love has gotten past the personas and the constructs and all the ways in which we hyper-defend really believing we can be loved just as we are for who God made us? If it gets past all of that, One way you'll know is that your love will become more expansive. Your love will become more generous, more inclusive. So has the love of God made you a person who has created room for those you otherwise would not? Has it made you a person who loves more expansively? Do you believe the love of God is long enough and deep enough to include you in all of your failure, in all of your loss, in all of your not getting it? I hate to be so hard on you, but this is the truth about us. Do you believe that God's love is high enough to take you to new heights of love, compassion, generosity, and sacrifice for others as you take on the character of Jesus. There's a St. Catherine of Siena quote here that I love. My favorite one is, 
uh, along the lines of, be who God made you to be and you will set the world on fire. That seems appropriate for this sermon as well. But here she says, we are of such value to God that God came to live among us and to guide us home. God will go to any length to seek us, even if to being lifted high upon the cross to draw us back. We can only respond by loving God for God's love. That's what God asks of you. Love God back. Love God back. If you hear one thing today, you are loved by God. You are loved by this community. We will extend that to one another. Step into this ring of love to know, as Paul puts it, the fullness of God. Okay. Two points that anybody here might say, that's not very practical sounding to me. It should sound that way a little bit, right? Because I, you asked me at the sermon today, Frank, what do you think Paul means by inner being? I don't know. I really don't, to be honest. Paul says things and I'm like, I have no idea. But the longer Paul lives, it seems, the more he speaks like this. He talks about the eyes of your heart being enlightened. I don't know what that means. But he's accessing something. He's connecting to something. And it is mysterious. There's a place, this is not in the notes, there's a place in the book of 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about a friend of his. Are you ready for this? who was called up to the third heaven. I have no idea what that means. And if you do, you're lying. <laughs> Through your teeth, you are lying. Oh, I know what that means. I read a book about it. Yeah, right. But this is what Paul does. Paul is extending an invitation. says there's a deeper way of knowing. There's a deeper mystery here. This is why Paul is the one who uses the phrase mystery of the gospel quite a bit. So let's get practical. What can we do as a result of what Paul is talking about here? Well, we can pray. This is a prayer. This is a prayer. We're actually overhearing a prayer. Paul begins that this is a prayer. I pray that. And on it goes. And there's a place where Paul talks about praying without ceasing. And I think that's instructive right now, too. Because I don't think Paul means that it's just constant words, you know? I don't think Jesus went into the wilderness and for 40 days, it's just 40 days of prayer. Okay? I think there's more here. What is Paul commending? I think he's speaking about a constant stewardship of our connection to God. Think about that. A constant stewardship of our connection to God. We don't create a connection to God. We create conditions favorable to us recognizing it, maintaining it, and living in it. In other words, we must craft practices and habits that make room and space for this to happen. And there are two words that came to, came to me uh, late in life. We said to come earlier when it comes to prayer because I thought it was all about the words. It's not, it's not not about the words. It's just not merely that. And it's the words wait and still. And when you do a search of these, you will have pages upon pages of biblical writers talking about prayer in terms of, be, of waiting and of being still, which implies being silent. 
someone says, okay, I can be still, but then what do I have to do? I have such good news for you. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Be still and know that I am God. You know, I was invited by generous friends a few years ago to go to the SF Symphony and um, went out to dinner beforehand and we kind of found out throughout the day that it was going to be a somber night at the symphony because the previous day in rehearsal, the principal oboist, Michael Bennett, died during rehearsal. This is a few years ago. Maybe, Scott, what was this, two years ago? Two years ago. The symphony started out by saying, tonight's performance is dedicated to Bill Bennett, and we want to observe a moment of silence. There was no direction, just silence. And the person leading this was smart enough to allow it to go on a long time. 3,000 people in Davies Symphony Hall observed silence. And it was profound. The gravity of it all, the sheer power of that moment, all the clutter is pushed away. And the gravity of our existence is more easily seen. Words were not needed. Words are always an approximation, and yet some are better than others, which is why we love great novelists and poets and writers, I know. But invariably, lots of words tangle us into more words where we have to explain and clarify and justify, and then we're right back into our heads. You know, Jesus tried to warn us of this, right? You know this, in Matthew 6. Maybe this is why he said in Matthew 6, and steered us away from heaping up lots of words in our prayers. The silence is more spacious, more forgiving, less frantic. More to say on silence. I'm skipping part of my sermon because we're about out of time. More on silence to come, but, but I think Paul is calling us into a contemplative space. And I would say a contemplative mission. Contemplative mission. So, today is August the 4th. Which means, and I know this is really advanced, but stay with me. I'm going to try not to lose you. Tomorrow is August 5th. And on Monday, August the 5th, 1996, Fred and my wife Torelli and our then three children landed at San Francisco International Airport on a one-way ticket. Scared to death. So tomorrow is our anniversary of us actually being here. And as the fall of, no, 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 don't clap, it's fine. As the fall of 96 (laughs) progressed, God brought together a group of people, that's it, who began to dream. We began to dream. We began to dream. A group of people began to dream as they sat in our living room. And we chased children and tried to talk about a church that we're trying to start and all these kinds of things. And since we really didn't have... Any money, any people, nothing, basically, with very few contacts. We loved this last part of Ephesians chapter 3, where it says there, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. That was one of our key verses. Because as we looked around, we were like, this is not going to work. (laughs) This is not going to happen. 
But we began to imagine a church that would be an engine of creativity and renewal and impact. Nine months later, in May of 97, we had the first ever membership class. And there were nine attenders. Torelli says only eight really count because one of them was her and she's married to the pastor, so there's that. <laughs> and they would all join in June of 97. And in that class, we dreamed about a church that would be a vibrant community that supported one another wherever we are in our journey in every age and stage. We in that class imagined a church that would help start other churches in urban settings even though we ourselves were barely able to get started. We imagined some kind of therapeutic presence in the city, some kind of theological formation presence, some kind of holistic healing presence in the city that would make a noticeable impact. We talked about all of those things. In our 23 years as a church, we have been directly involved in starting 23 churches all over the United States in urban settings. God did, is doing more than we could imagine. In 2008, the Counseling Center turned immediately into a therapeutic presence that has had well over a thousand clients. I've sussed all of these numbers, none of them are me being hyperbole here. A thousand clients since we opened our doors. God did and is doing more than we could imagine. In 2011, the Newbigin House of Studies began, out of which over 200 fellows that we heard about today and 70 seminarians have been deeply impacted. People who are influencers, who are leaders, who are, who are going to lead new congregations, who are going to be drawing from a deeper pool of wisdom throughout the rest of their life and, and whatever arena of life they've been placed in. God did and is doing more than we could imagine. In 2015, after listening and learning for 19 years as a church, we started City Hope Community Center and shortly after City Hope House, which houses 25 men and women on the road to sustained recovery. Here's a stat for you that Paul Trudeau gave me yesterday. In the past year, 16,200 people have had either a home-cooked meal served to them at City Hope or had their groceries delivered to their door. God did and is doing what? More than we, go ahead, could imagine. Gosh, boy, it's like pulling teeth from you people this morning. <laughs> I know, I've gone too far. It's, well, you're kind of punishing me now for going over the allotted time. None of those institutions exist without City Church. None of them. A church that could grow leaders and volunteers, and supporters, and visionaries. None of them can remain sustainable without a church that's healthy and thriving. It's why I don't hesitate to ask you to prioritize your giving to City Church, because when you support this church, you're supporting an engine of creativity, admission that is not done imagining. God has done, God will do more than we can imagine. I love it that it says more than we can ask or imagine. Think of that. This is a summons to prayer and engagement, not a summons to only prayer or summons just to engagement, but to both and. 
God can do more than we ask. What if God answered every one of your prayers right now? Would the world really be changed? What, what would happen? What are you asking for? God can do more than that. What can, you, what can you imagine? That's what Paul says. This is an invitation to engagement. Somebody asked me recently, they said, what kind of church are you becoming these days? And it came out of my mouth before I could grab it, which does happen sometimes. I said, the only kind of church your children would consider attending when they're adults. And they said, you got that right. And it starts with grasping Christ's love for us. A love that takes on human flesh. A love that takes on the sin of the world. A love that takes on death itself and is vindicated in resurrection for us and for this world and sends us out to be practitioners of his way of love, to be God's presence in this city, in this world, in all the places we inhabit, to give our lives away for the sake of the world because that's part of what it means to live in the fullness of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this challenging passage from Paul. We ask that you would give us faith. We ask that you would give us such a sense of your love for us, such a deep abiding sense of that, that we would make space in our lives to be quiet and to be still. That you would meet us as we seek to craft lives that are conducive to us seeing and experiencing you. And help us as a church to keep imagining, to keep asking, because you can do more than we can ask or imagine. We pray in Jesus' name.